For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. One of the things that I find very interesting throughout the book of Genesis is that there are these occasions where the characters in the story will give a new title to God. You can see one of these occasions in Genesis chapter 14 when Melchizedek comes on the scene. Melchizedek is this random priest of God in Jerusalem that Abraham encounters. Abraham encounters him after rescuing Lot and all the inhabitants of Sodom from a coalition of kings. And and when he encounters Melchizedek, he's having to make a decision. Abraham is having to make a decision as to whether or not he's going to uh, um, receive benefits from the kings he rescued or if he's going to chalk up his success to God. And Melchizedek refers to God in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18 as El Elyon, the God most high. As if to help Abraham see that the one true God, El Elyon, was deserving of his allegiance apart from any other. You can see Abraham give a title to God later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter um, 17. I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 22. After that potential sacrifice of his son Isaac, God reveals a lamb in the bushes for him to go and use as a replacement for his son. That whole test scenario led Abraham to the point that he would refer to God as Jehovah Yireh, the God who provides. And here in Genesis chapter 16, there's going to be a title given to God by Hagar. Now, Hagar's not a major player in the book of Genesis. She's this maidservant of Sarah's who is utilized by Abraham and Sarah as a surrogate's mother. And after Hagar becomes pregnant by Abraham, we find out that Sarah can't stand her anymore. We're told in in chapter 16 and verse 4 that Sarah despised her. In verse 6, we're told that Sarah mistreated her. And as a result of the unkind and harsh treatment that she received, Hagar ran away. And it's in her running away that I want us to see how a title for God unfolds. You see, you'll read there in verse 7 of Genesis 16 that the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. In verse 8, we're told that he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? In that moment, the angel of the Lord shows his awareness of who she is without asking for her name. Shows an awareness of ultimately where she came from, acknowledging 
who her master was. Hagar answered and said, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. And then if you follow the story, the angel of the Lord, the one speaking on behalf of God in this moment, instructs her to return to Abraham and Sarah to submit to them, and then promises that the Lord would increase her lineage so that they will be too numerous to count. Look at verse 13, because that's really where we're going with this. It's in verse 13 that Hagar, after witnessing this encounter with the Lord, she gives a title to God. She refers to him as El Roy. You are the God who sees me. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. So when Hagar encountered the Lord, there was no better title that she could think of than El Roy, the God who sees. Because he saw her when no one else did. He found her where no one else could find her. And her title for God is extraordinarily appropriate. Because Scripture is filled with references to the omniscient vision of our Lord. As we draw this year to a close, we simultaneously draw our 2020 theme to a close. Our theme this year has been vision, and it's been our objective in our sermons this year to present lessons that can communicate to us just how important our vision is and what it is we should be focused on. And, and, and the lessons have been intended to help us see our need to see better. But today, I don't want to focus on our vision. I want to focus on God's vision. I want us to consider what the God who sees, sees when he looks at you and when he looks at me. What does God see when he looks at us? There are only three things I'm going to focus on. When I initially wrote the outline for this, there were eight. So I've narrowed it down for your sake. Let's start with this. God sees my need. There's some beautiful words written in Matthew chapter 6, if you'll jump ahead to that chapter. Jesus, in particular, at the outset of Matthew chapter 6, is trying to provide his disciples with a better understanding of how they are to engage in some practices of their faith, particularly praying and fasting and giving. And it's in Matthew chapter 6, particularly in verses 7 and 8, where Jesus talks about prayer. And he told his disciples not to pray like the heathens who use empty phrases or, or vain repetitions. Not to pray like the heathens who want to be heard for their many words. Now, why does he tell them not to pray like this? You look at verse 8. His reasoning is this. Because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
Jesus makes it very clear that God is acutely aware of our needs even before we communicate them to Him. Does that mean that we shouldn't communicate our needs? No, not at all. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't pray, that we shouldn't communicate our needs, that we shouldn't make our request known to Him. Instead, He's saying that we can have confidence in God's concern for and awareness of our specific needs. What what Jesus is communicating to us about God is that He knows exactly what we're going through. And not only that, in this same chapter, He's going to indicate that He knows exactly what we need to endure, to heal, to survive. Skip down to verse 31 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus there instructed us to not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Why should we not worry about those things? Aren't those things important? Aren't those things necessary for survival? Shouldn't I be concerned about those things if they're that important? Well, in verse 32 of Matthew 6, Jesus says why you shouldn't worry about those things. It's because your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see, Jesus is telling us throughout Matthew chapter 6 that God knows what you need, that God cares about your needs, and that God will help with your needs. Just do a cursory thought process through the stories you read about in the Bible. You come to the creation account, and God is fully aware of Adam's emotional need for companionship. It's God who said it's not good that man should be alone, not Adam. And it's God who provided a helper to address that need for a companion. Journey ahead into Exodus, and you've got the Israelites living in slavery in Egypt. They have a need for social justice. And who is it that recognizes the need? Who is it that provides a means for their need to be met? It's God who sends Moses to lead them out of that horrible situation. I think about the widow of Zarephath, an individual that might not get mentioned a whole lot. Her story appears in 1 Kings chapter 17. And she's living in poverty. The last remnants of food in her house are about to be gone. She has a very serious need for provision. And what does God do? He sends Elijah to live with her. And while he's there, her cupboards never run dry. I think about the leper who had a need for physical healing, whose medical condition prevented him from having any interaction with any person, who made him an outcast in society. And Jesus came to that man and touched him, healing him in the process. He had a need for physical healing. 
I think about the woman caught in adultery. She had a need for forgiveness. She had a need for a fresh start. She had a need that was a spiritual need that only God could meet. And in that moment, when the religious leaders of her day should have been helping her to change her life, it's Jesus who issues a pardon that forgives her of her past. You see, you can journey throughout the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament or New, and you will find every need under the sun. You will find reference to every need that you and I encounter or will encounter. And you will find a God who always has an answer to that need. Maybe today, you simply need to be reminded that your need, whatever it may be, is seen by God. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows your condition. He knows your hurts and your wounds and your baggage. He knows all of it. He knows that you need physical healing. He knows that you need financial assistance. He knows that you need emotional support. He knows that you need social justice. He knows that you need some sort of spiritual help. He knows what you need need. He is the God who sees, and He sees your need. And it may be that today you are here right now because this is going to be your opportunity to find help for your need. Or it may just be that you're here today right now to be reminded that God knows what you're going through and He wants you to trust Him. God sees your need. What is that need today? And are you willing to turn over your needs to Him? Because that's what He's asking you to do. Jesus is the one who offered a yoke exchange in Matthew chapter 11. It is Jesus who said, hey, take my yoke. It's easier. I'll carry your load. You come to me. That's, uh, that's the Kyle Rye translation for the record. It's not very accurate, but it gets the point across. God knows your need. But that's not the only thing he sees. See, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to realize that whatever I'm going through right now, whatever need I have, He knows it. Whether it's, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, He knows it. Because He's the God who sees. That's a beautiful thing, but it can be a frightening thing to realize that God sees everything. That's because it also means that God sees my sin. God sees my sin. I think it's easy for all of us to say that everyone here is at least a recovering sinner. I think we're all very comfortable acknowledging that every person in this room has sinned, minus the uh, 
young'uns, if you will. We're comfortable looking across the room and seeing another individual and, and knowing that they're imperfect. In fact, a lot of times that makes us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? Because there's one thing that will give anybody confidence in life, and that is compare, comparing ourselves to others who are worse than us. So we can be comfortable admitting to one another that, yeah, I'm a sinner. I think the vast majority, if not all of us, would be okay walking up here and simply saying, I'm a sinner. That wouldn't bother us. But would you be comfortable admitting your specific sins to this audience? Let's go a step beyond that. Would you be comfortable admitting all of your specific sins to this audience, not just the ones you're willing to acknowledge. It's easy to walk up in here and say, yeah, I've lied. Or it might be easy to walk up here and say, yeah, I lost my temper. Or, yeah, I, I said that bad word that one time. How easy is it to admit your struggle with lust? Or how easy is it to admit your struggle with greed? How easy is it to admit, admit those unethical business practices you've engaged in? How easy is it to admit your failings in your marriage? See, there are some sins we're comfortable talking about. There are other sins that we don't want anyone to know about. But also think about this. Would you be comfortable not only admitting all of your specific sins, but would you be comfortable admitting when and how often you committed those sins? Or what efforts you took to keep them hidden from everybody else? You see, we tend to keep our sins private. We tend to think that as long as we can cover our tracks, our practice, or, excuse me, or practice our sins in secret, then no one will know. And the reality is, it is highly unlikely that I'm going to know your sins. But there is one who sees every one of them. All of them. Every time. Regardless of what you do to hide them. David declared of God in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 5, O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Now think about that. This is the guy who deliberately and unashamedly had an affair with Bathsheba. This is the guy who got Bathsheba pregnant, then tried to cover it up by inexplicably summoning her husband home from the battle lines so that he might spend some time with her and they could play off the pregnancy as if it was his. And then when that didn't work, this is the guy who 
who had Bathsheba's husband killed so that he could then marry her without any questions being asked. This is the guy who took every step possible to act like nothing was wrong, to conceal his sin from the public, took every step to pretend like he was innocent until God called him out via a prophet. This is the guy who thought he was an expert at hiding his sin. And he's declaring in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 5 that my sins are not hidden from you. David's words reveal that he came to the realization that even though he could hide his sin from every person on earth, he couldn't hide his sins from God. And David's words are echoed in the New Testament. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, that there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. He said that God will one day bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. Whether we're looking at David's words in Psalms, Jesus' words in Luke, or Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, the point is that no matter how well you may think you can hide your sin, God sees and will one day expose it. And maybe today you need to be reminded. You need to be reminded that that sin in your life that nobody knows about is, in fact, known by God. Whether it be something you've done that God has forbidden or something you've failed to do that God has commanded, He knows about it. Because there is no sin hidden from Him. And it may just be that today is the day you need to admit that you've got a sin problem. That there's something that you continue to allow to exist in your life that shouldn't be there. That one day is going to catch up to you because be sure your sins will find you out. As, Mo as Moses told the Israelites in Numbers 23, I believe it was. It may just be that there's something happening in your life that you're trying to keep hidden. And you may be able to fool every one of us for the rest of your life. But God knows. And God will one day judge that. Unless you let the blood of Jesus deal with it right now. Because God sees your sin. And not only that, but God sees your heart. Many of you probably knew that this point was coming because in a very popular passage from 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, God informed Samuel that he does not see as man sees. Because while man looks at the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. Today when we talk about a person's heart, we're typically referring to their emotions. But when the Bible talked about the heart, it was referring to much more. As one author pointed out, 
In the Bible, the heart was the totality of the inner person. The heart was thought of as the seat of the character, the origin of desires, affections, perceptions, thoughts, reasoning, imagination, conscience, intentions, purposes, will, and faith. To put it simply, in the Bible, the heart is what determined what governed your life. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, to above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So when Scripture declares that God can see your heart, it's indicating that He sees much more than your emotional composition. We read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 at the outset of this lesson. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It goes on to say that no creature is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must to whom we must give an account. God looks at our heart and He is able to see not just what we do and what we say, but also what we think, what we feel, what we desire, what our intentions are at any given moment. In other words, God doesn't just see what you did or what you said, but why you did that. Why you said that. And that means that God can see past any mask or charade or front that you can put up to disguise yourself from other people. I've been thinking about this ability to see the thoughts and intentions of the heart terminology quite a bit. And one thing that really has stood out to me is that it means God can see our faith. For you and I, faith is not a visible thing. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But even though faith is not visible to the human eye, it is most certainly visible to the divine eye. Because as Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. God is pleased by something that you and I can't visibly see. So when God looks at our heart, He can see what is invisible to the human eye. He can see our faith. More specifically, He can see if you truly believe in Him or not. If you will take Him at His word or not. He can see whether or not you're willing to act on your belief. He can see if you have confidence in Him or if you have doubts. He can see if you're walking by faith or if you're walking by sight. He can see if you're surrendering to His will or if you're holding on to your own. He can see if your faith is alive or if it's dead. So I'm reminded of John's initial vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 12 and 13, you'll see that John saw seven golden lampstands which we will find out represent the churches to whom he is specifically writing this letter. 
And in that, those same two verses of Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, you find out that standing among those lampstands was someone like a, like a son of man. That title, Son of Man, is a reference to Jesus. It was actually one of his most favored titles for himself if you go to the Gospels. And the imagery here of the seven golden lampstands with the Son of Man standing among them indicates that Jesus is among his church. And therefore, he is fully aware of what's going on in and with and among his people. This becomes all the more evident when you read the next two chapters of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, and you read these seven letters that Jesus is communicating to these churches via John. And if you skim those letters, you'll see that Jesus praises these congregations. He critiques these congregations. He encourages them and warns them. He discusses their strengths and their weaknesses. He points out their success and their failure. He brings up their past and reveals their future at times. In other words, throughout these seven letters, Jesus shares his intimate knowledge of what's going on in the life of his disciples because Jesus is always among his church. Here's why I bring that up. This information about Jesus is here for us to understand that there is nothing that can be hidden from Jesus in his church. And that means that Jesus knows your faith. Now, I don't know where your faith is at. I don't know if your faith is real or a facade. I don't know if your faith is strong or weak. I don't know if your faith is mature or immature. I don't know if your faith is living or dead. But Jesus does. Jesus could see the faith of a father who, when he brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus to be healed, readily admitted that he possessed some degree of unbelief. But Jesus could see the faith that was there. Jesus could see the faith of a destitute widow who gave her last two coins to the Lord rather than use them for her own care, knowing that as a result she might starve to death. But Jesus could see her faith. Jesus could see the faith of a thief on the cross, even though all we can see is a criminal being executed for his crimes who in his final moments chose to defend Jesus when someone began to make fun of him. But Jesus could see his faith. Maybe today you need to be reminded that Jesus can see your faith. You need to be reminded that that's not hidden from God. He sees your struggle with doubt. He sees your lack of growth. He sees your failure to put faith in action. He sees through your facade of faith. If that's what he sees, then today is an opportunity for your faith to be rekindled. 
but it may also be that he sees those small acts of faith in which you engage. Those behind-the-scenes, unknown things that you do for him. It may be he sees what your left hand is doing even though your right hand can't see it. He sees your fight to keep up your faith. He sees your devotion in the face of adversity. He sees your growth and your maturation. And if that's what he sees, then today is an opportunity for your faith to be encouraged because God sees those things that the rest of us can't see. You see, when we reflect on the fact that God is the God who sees, there is something absolutely wonderful about that. Because it means God sees things that nobody else sees that are good, that are righteous, that are a blessing. But it does also mean that he sees some things that are negative. That he sees your failures. That he sees your sin. That he sees all those times that you, fa- that you don't do his will. And that can be a frightening thing. I think that's why it's so important we recognize this attribute of God, the God who sees let me close with this. I'm told that if you were to fly a helicopter over the Statue of Liberty, you could see her sculpted hair inside the crown that sits on top of her head. The interesting thing about that detail is the fact that Lady Liberty's head was completed by, by excuse me, 1878. That's 25 years before a couple of guys named Wilbur and Orville made history in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. In other words, at the time the sculpture made the statue, helicopters and airplanes didn't exist. So he didn't know how many people, if any, would be able to see the top of her head. But he spent the same kind of care, painstakingly crafting her hair like he did her toes or her face or her robe. Even though he didn't know whether or not anybody would see the top of her head, he was committed to doing it right because one day someone might see it. Maybe today we all just need to be reminded that it doesn't matter whether or not anybody ever sees our needs or our sin or our heart. What matters is that God sees it. And so in all things, we should seek to please Him because we know that our Father who sees in secret will reward us. As we draw our lesson to a close this morning, I hope it's a blessing to you to recall that God sees. I hope it's a challenge to you to recall that God sees. Right now, God sees you. He knows what you need. He knows your sin. And He knows your faith. 
And if what he's seeing isn't pleasing to him, you know that. And it's up to you to decide whether or not you're going to correct it. And so we offer this invitation this morning that if you need to write your relationship with God in any way, shape, or form, then now's an opportunity to do that. If you need the assistance of this family of God to help you do better, to help you to live up to God's standards, to help you overcome whatever it is you're struggling with, then this is your opportunity. Because here's the most beautiful thing that God sees. When you put His Son on in baptism, when you clothe yourself with Christ through baptism, what He's going to see is His Son. And it may just be that you need to start today by having your sins removed through the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism. Whatever your need is, whatever your struggle is, whatever you need to turn over to God, won't you do it today? Because He already sees it. He already knows it. And He's calling you home. We invite you to come while together we stand and sing.